yeah, there's a lot of things going on in Samson's story, and there's lots of different ways to kind of cut it up. We are going to generally look at uh, Samson's sexual life. So sex, the topic of sex. I don't think there's anything that we talk about less, especially in the church, but probably think a lot more about. You don't often talk about sex in church, or if you do, it's just to tell like, young people that it's bad, don't do it, and like, that's basically it. Maybe the topic of sex is awkward, like especially here on a Sunday. Maybe it's like when you were younger and you had a conversation with your parents, you just could not wait to be over, and you're like, this is the worst, will it ever stop? Thankfully, it was only one conversation if you only had one because it's just so cringeworthy. Well, here's why we have to talk about this, because when there's a void in discipleship, the dominant culture will fill it. It's, it's like a, if you as a parent never talk to your kids about sex, there will be all sorts of messages about sex that they will hear and will have to interpret and understand their, themselves without someone leading them. And it's, the culture will, be, will become that surrogate parent for us. And there are so many messages of sex out there. That's why we have to talk about it, especially when the Bible brings it up. We can't just skirt by it as much as it might be easier for you or probably also for me. We hear all sorts of messages like sex is the best thing in the world, or you should be able to do it whenever you want to, with whoever you want to, whenever you want to do it. Or maybe you've heard like sex is just, a, like, just like a physical thing, like it's not a big deal, it's just a physical thing. Or if you don't want to sleep with, with a person, there are lots of other options out there, like pornography, for example. In fact, there was a, an article, I think it came out in 2018 or 2017 in, in the Huffington Post. I think the title was something like um, Porn Users account for more than Netflix, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook combined, or something like that, like some 30% of the internet being used for pornography use, which pornography is directly linked to sex trafficking and, and human trafficking and the drug world. They're all kind of like connected. Um, and now with COVID, people are staying home a lot more and are bored a lot more, and porn use is skyrocketing because of that. This should not surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us at all. But it does mean we should talk about it. Now, maybe... You don't look at porn. And maybe you aren't having sex outside of marriage. Still, sex is very much a part of our everyday lives, whether we like it or not. It's just a reality of how things are. And for a church to not talk about it is akin to a parent not talking about it. So when we come across it in the Bible, we are going to go there. Uh, we don't teach what's comfortable or convenient or what we would like to be true, what makes it easier for us. We, we just have to teach what the Bible says, what God tells us about himself and about this world he's created for us. And also, let me also say, if God doesn't offend you, if the Bible does not offend you, you're probably not really reading it right. And if God isn't offending you, you're probably not really following God of the Bible. Jesus offended how many people like when he was alive for the very short three years of his public ministry, and he was put to death for it. Like Surely, as we follow Jesus, because we're not always on his path, when we're on our own path and we don't want to be moved from it, and Jesus says, no, come over here, like, oh, we're, we're going to chafe at that. We're not going to like that. And that's okay. It's never anywhere that um, the Bible doesn't say Christians have to never be offended or have to like everything. Like That's not even a part of the Christian life. It doesn't mean we have to like everything. It does mean, though, the best thing for us is to follow Jesus, to submit to his words, whether we like them or more difficultly when we don't. So now, at the risk of losing you all, I feel like since I've talked about sex a little bit, like I have a little bit of chips, because the one thing you can just do in the middle of a boring sermon is just say sex, and people are like, oh yeah, well, what are we talking about? Um, so now that I have some chips, I'm going to spend them a little bit by um, talking about a theological term called the noetic effect of sin. If I can get there. There we are. Noetic effect of sin. Um, 
the new, if you've not heard this term before, the noetic effect of sin is this. It says three things. One, we are imperfect. That's an easy one to get. Everyone says, I'm not perfect. And when we come across people who are imperfect, we get it. Yeah, they're not perfect. We're, we were born imperfect, and also we live imperfect lives. Okay, so none of us are perfect. The second thing is this imperfection pervades all of us, all parts of us. It's not like our emotions are okay, but the rest of us are wrong, or like what we kind of do is okay, but our thoughts are like, or our thoughts are okay. Every part of what we do, what we think, what we feel, it's all messed up and just sli- at the very least slightly distorted, if not massively distorted, because we are imperfect, because we're born imperfect. So it's not like our um, emotions are untainted, or our desires are untainted. All of, all of who we are is untainted. No part of us is perfect, if that makes sense. Now, this is different than how the world works. As much as the world is okay with people being imperfect, there's still some things that I think generally, by default, we hold back and we think, no, actually, it's probably fine as is. Maybe some of the biggest things is our emotions, how we feel. Often, if we feel like we feel something, then that means that it's completely legitimate and untainted by any kind of distortion at all. And it's completely perfect. My feelings are perfect. And for you to say, my feelings aren't perfect, is like, you know, that's you like removing my identity from myself. It's hard for us to kind of to discern those things. Our, our emotional lives are just as broken as the rest of us, and they need just as much submission and surrender to Jesus as the rest of us. Uh, and also, our emotional lives aren't completely whole. They're in need of becoming whole. So by ourselves, we don't have that. So on, not, on one side, that the noetic effect of sin is maybe an easy thing to get. Yeah, we're not perfect. But the other side, the part that does offend us, means the parts of us that we think are completely okay could possibly be and very likely are not okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, so this is regardless of where anyone's coming from, whether you follow Jesus or not, we're all in this together. We're all messed up. We're all broken together. Okay, so that's the end of the Theology 101 lecture. Um, Let's talk about sex again, right? Let me bring you back. So sex is a strong desire, probably the strongest desire we have. I mean, biologically, it has to be that way for the human race to have started and to be able to continue. And though uh, it might be a good desire, having a good desire in the wrong place makes it a disordered desire. So the desire for sex is completely good. Like, who doesn't, like, that's great to be connected to another human being in that way. But in the wrong way, outside of how God has told us to where to put that desire, and that good desire becomes corrupted, becomes messed up. So the desire for sex to be connected to another human in the most vulnerable and intimate way, that's what sex is. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Before sex is bad, sex is good. Like, who made it up? God made it up. It's a God thing. But to proceed as we think we should to do, as the book, in, uh, as Judges says, to do what's right in our own eyes just leads to chaos. And we'll get that as the further we go along in Judges, it descends more into chaos, and the narrator Judges constantly says, and the people were doing what's right in their own eyes, which is kind of where we are as a culture. I mean, how many years ago was Judges, and yet we still find ourselves in the same human situation? So we're in a conundrum. We have a strong desire, and we don't want God to tell us how to live. If we're honest, who really wants that? We don't really want that. We submit to that, and eventually, with maturity, we do grow to love that, but it's not an initial kind of thing for us. This is whether you're married, whether you're single, whatever. So I think the thing that we need to recognize as we come to these verses is uh, recognizing our imperfections as they are connected with our desires. So if we're not perfect, 
our desires aren't perfect either. And that's a difficult thing to get. This is not easy stuff. It's very hard. And when it comes to sex, we all have disordered desires. Every single one of us. And this is an area where I think conservative evangelicals can kind of get it wrong because often conservative evangelicals will, will find one particular people group, often the LGBTQ people, and be like, well, they're the people with the problem. We're the people that are fine. And that's totally not what we see, especially in this story. Like Everyone has a problem when it comes to sex. We're all in the same boat together. So um, we're going to look at two things. First, two, the two points in how we get it wrong. The way of pagans, which we'll get to first, and then we'll get to the way of prostitutes, and then we'll look at the way of Jesus. Because there there's not a whole lot of bright lights in this story. Like People are getting set on fire. There's wars. Eyes are gouged out. It's like prostitutes. It's, it's, like, it's dark, and it judges just kind of gets worse. Um, so here's what we're going to learn about Jesus. Without Jesus, we will be given over to our disordered desires, just like Samson. We'll end up just like him, and we'll sabotage our spiritual lives through it. And Jesus saves us from our self-sabotage and gives us a path of surrender that leads to wholeness. But before we get to how Jesus tells us to live, let's use judges as a mirror for ourselves and see first, what does it look like for us? Um, The way of pagans. Um, So the word pagan in this story is someone who worships a God other than Yahweh, other than the Lord. Um, Specifically in this story, it's the Philistines. Now the Philistines are a notorious enemy of the Israelites. Uh, during this time, they're not just an enemy of the Israelites. It's not like they just don't like, they don't like them or whatever. The Philistines are like, actively suppressing the Israelites as well during this time. And uh, the Philistines, the way they chose to do life is kind of similar to the way that we do life today, which is do what you want. That's the way of pagans. Do what you want. It's, it's an easy way to live. You don't have to think very much. Whatever you want to do, just do it. But let's do a brief overview of your boy Samson's life. Okay, we're gonna look at we just we read a lot about him, but here's kind of a brief overview of what we're gonna focus on. If you don't know anything about the Bible, you might know, well, Samson was strong. That's a weird thing with his hair. Wasn't Samson and Delilah? Weren't they like, you know, a romantic couple? Obviously not that romantic. They're just trying to get at each other the whole time. We don't often hear about Samson's relationships with women, but there's so much of that going on here. I felt like as as we were going through this, how could we not talk about relationships. And often, though, if women are brought up in, in this story of Samson, it's, aren't women just a bunch of people who nag people all the time? They just, they're just nagging. Samson, has to give, Samson just has to give in to Delilah and has to tell her. Like, and then he has to be taken over as if he's like, you know, held in custody with this woman. It's a very kind of male-centric reading. And that's just not how the Bible talks about it. So what we do in these stories and judges is we start as we normally have done, The Israelites are not following God and are also angry at God for the consequences of not following him. This is how we work just as well. We don't follow God. Bad stuff happens. Say, why God, why? It's the same kind of thing that's happening with the Israelites here. But unlike our experience, and we didn't get to read this as in chapter 14 or chapter 13, unlike our experience, uh, Samson was a very kind of special baby. So nobody that I know was told by an angel that their son was going to be born and had to take on certain Nazarite vows. We'll talk about Nazarite vows in a second. And, the, and like this kind of hope that comes from an angel. That's a very um, uh, strange thing that Samson gets. So this is kind of unlike our experience. But this angel um, tells Samson that uh, he's to take on the vows of, of a Nazarite. So wh- like, what is that? So a Nazarite vows are basically three things. Don't touch dead things. Don't mess with your hair. Let your hair grow. And don't drink alcohol. That's what it means. 
It, it has nothing about an ethnicity, has nothing to do of like where you were born. It's just taking those three specific vows. By the way, spoiler alert, all of which Samson just completely doesn't matter, doesn't care about, and completely disavows. It's a bit like if, if you've seen The Mandalorian, season two of Mandalorian, by the way, is out now, so don't miss it. If you've seen The Mandalorian, how many people in here? Probably like, what, three or four people have seen it? And people are kind of like, uh, oh, like, what does it mean to be a Mandalorian? And he just like, says, this is the way. That's kind of the thing he says, this is the way. If you haven't seen The Mandalorian, I can't help you understand Nazarite vows. So I'm sorry. You just have to get Disney Plus and get, get on that train because it's worth it. Okay, I'll end, the, I'll end the nerddom. But it's basically like the, the way of being a Nazarite is don't cut, your, don't cut your hair, don't drink alcohol, don't touch dead things. So Samson the Nazarite, he grows up. He sees a young Philistine woman that is pretty. And he told his parents to get, him, to get her for him, which is a customary way of, of becoming somebody's wife in that time. Uh, the first red flag, though, for us and for his parents is she's a Philistine. So again, this is not just a, a mere enemy, as if like a prejudiced kind of enemy. These are people who are actively oppressing the Israelites during this time, who are worshiping other gods during this time as well. So Samson's parents, in the weakest and lamest way possible, they tell Samson, I don't know, maybe should you think of somebody else? He's like, no. And they're like, okay, okay that's fine, that's fine, that's cool. Like, whatever you want, Samson. So, that's, um, so Samson doesn't heed their parents' voice, advice and tells them to do what he wants. Not really uh, a strong kind of Nazarite uh, way of acting here. Well, he goes and he plans to get married anyway. Um, now, I, look with me at um, verse 10 of chapter 14. This is something that it's easy for us to kind of read and gloss over, but for the people at the time, it would mean something very specific. So verse 10. Now his father, Samson's father, went down to see the woman and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. Okay, so there is a Philistine town, because it's a Philistine woman. Samson and his father go to this Philistine town and have a customary Philistine feast, as it was customary for other young men. I just wonder if more glass is going to break in the background. Um, actually, that's a great kind of, ba- that's probably what it sounded like, because what this feast was, was a seven-day binge-drinking fest. Seven days straight, just drinking, nonstop. That's what's going on during a feast. But Samson, he's a Nazarite. Not supposed to be drinking alcohol. Oh, I'm sure Samson was the only one abstaining from drink during this seven-day customary feast that he threw in his own honor at his, bride parent, his bride's parents' house. Sure, that's what happened, Samson. We all believe you. You didn't inhale. So that didn't happen. And now during this drunken party, though, everyone's, you know, feeling it, and Samson starts a wager. He's like, if you can answer my riddle, then I'm going to give you some clothes. Uh, or th- no, then, and, but if you can't answer my riddle, then I get your clothes. Clothes was, you know, was a, basically like a, a barter system back then. Well, eventually, his bride-to-be, even though it says wife, it just kind of functions like a fiancé at this point, his bride-to-be tells uh, his friends, they're not, notice too, they're, they don't, they're never called friends, they're just called young men, they're young Philistine men. None of these people really are Samson's friends. And anyway, uh, so she tells his friends the answer to the riddle. They get the riddle right, and Samson gets really angry with the woman who, who he told the information to. Of course, he's not angry at himself. He's angry at a woman. It's much easier to act that way, isn't it? And then, to top it all off, Samson's fiance is given over to someone, one of his other friends, to be married. So Samson never actually marries this woman like, completely and fully. This is just the beginning, though. It gets worse. So Samson's proud, right? He's not going to take this lion down. And so what he does is he sets some things on fire, and then what happens is the Philistines set his 
former fiance and his his dad and the house on fire, and then there's a big war that goes on. It just kind of gets worse and worse and worse and worse. He kills more Philistines, starts a war, Israelites and Philistines, Samson slaughtered even more Philistines. What in the world can we learn about this? This is like ridiculous. Like, how can we apply this to what's going on in our lives today? Well, a few things to take away here before we look at Samson and Delilah. Um, let's first look at how Samson acts with respect to his desire for sex. How does he act with his sexual desire? Because that's something that we can at least connect with in this, kind of, in this weird story. For Samson, if he wants something, he does it. He does what he wants. He sees something he wants to take, he takes it. I want that as my bride. Okay, that's, I'll have that. And I want to you know, drink when I drink, when I want to drink. Okay, I'll do that. I want to go... And we didn't even get to it, but I read it in the story. I'm going to kill a lion. I'm going to go back to the lion carcass, even though I'm not supposed to be touching dead bodies, and get honey out of there because I like honey. I want honey. I'm going to get the honey. I'm just going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Samson would fit in so well with common sense today. Samson is you do you. That's, what's going to stop him? He only lives once. Samson is like sharing YOLO memes on Instagram nonstop. This is his life. It's what he does. In fact, it's, this is so common for us today. It would be... It often is and even feels immoral for us to tell someone that they should not do something instead of the other way around. Immorality now is us saying you should not do something. How dare you hold someone back from fulfilling their desires? How dare you talk to Samson and be like, I don't think you should get married to her or I don't think you should touch that dead lion or I don't think you should go on a seven-day binge-drinking fest or I don't think you should set people on fire. Like, How dare you stop Samson from doing what he wants to do? Now, all of this, the way that Samson is acting, the way our culture teaches us, all of this are feel, it assumes that our feelings and our desires are perfect and should be followed through in every possible way. That's what our culture tells us. And that's really what the water that we're swimming in. That's what we're comfortable with. Our desires are not infallible. Although we think nothing can be wrong with what I feel or what I want. It's a very naive way to look at life. It's a very simplistic way. You don't have to think about anything. You, just don't, you don't have to be thoughtful at all. And you don't have to make hard decisions either. You can just kind of just act. And these are good desires, though, but they're in the wrong place. They're kind of messed up. They're disordered. And that messes everything up. So it doesn't matter to Samson that he was going to marry someone who doesn't follow the Lord that supposedly he followed and took vows to follow. He saw someone pretty. He had his mindset, and he did what he wanted to do. Now, I can just imagine the chat next time Samson sees a girl What's that like over drinks? She's like, oh, thanks for taking me out. Have you dated anybody? Yeah, yeah. How, how did that end? Well, people were set on fire. Wars were fought. You know, like honor was withheld. I don't know. How, how, it was a little complicated maybe is how we should kind of breach that subject. So let's talk about this next serious relationship that he has with Delilah. And we, uh, if you don't know anything about the Bible, you might have heard of Samson and Delilah. This is a serious relationship. Um... The, um, are, there are remarkable similarities between Delilah and his first fiance, who's unnamed, by the way. Um, the remarkable similarities. She doesn't follow Yahweh, where Samson supposedly does. Uh, she's not really for Samson's good, as, we're, as we see, and he does not really for her good either, and she tries to trick him. This is going to go great. I think this is going to be great. He's going he's gonna to love life, isn't he? So Delilah asks Samson, what's your source of power? And really what she's doing, she's asking, where is your weakness? Samson, you, see so, you seem so strong, like, where's your weakness? And he's not very apt to share 
which you think after four tries of seeing why she's asking him this, he would never actually share what his weakness is. Every time he shares his supposed weakness, she uses it against him, but he can, eventually he gives in. Maybe Samson was kind of too proud to think that, you know, that he just kind of owned his weakness or owned his strength. But he gives in, tells her it's his hair, she cuts it. He doesn't have the strength at this point. And then um, he gets captured by the Philistines and eventually he dies along with the Philistines. So here's the question. What's with the hair? It seems kind of arbitrary. Samson has done so many wrong things up to this point. Why is it now that he loses his strength? Like, why is he weak now? Well, we're not told in the text exactly when the Lord has left him, the spirit of the Lord has left him. We know at some point it's between you know, his, his last big feat of killing people and getting captured by the, by the Israelites, or by the, by the Philistines. Um, but he's gone back on all his vows, the drinking, the dead bodies, even like being tied with bowstrings. Bowstrings were old tendons of, of dead animals, so he's, he's in contact with a lot of dead stuff that he shouldn't be. And now, finally, his hair. So like, what's the deal? Is this like the last straw? Did, was God patient up to a point and kind of said, like, you know what? You've told me where you want to go and it's not on my path? We're not really told exactly. But God, at the very least, we know this. God had many reasons, many opportunities to leave him. And eventually he did, although God was very patient with Samson. And even at the end of Samson's life, God does listen to Samson. Maybe Samson's hair was the last straw. And maybe if we just kind of briefly, we could talk about Samson's parents. Last week, we talked about Jephthah and how he sacrificed his child, his only child. Um, Samson's parents, on the other side, they don't sacrifice their kid, they worship theirs. So I think between both stories, we see both sacrifice and worship of children is bad for kids. It's bad either way. He wants to get married to someone who doesn't follow the same faith, and they're like, well, if that's what you want, like whatever you want is the best thing. Like, that's the best thing for you. You're good all the time, Samson. Sacrificing or worshiping your child are both ways to parent badly. It always ends badly for the kids. So if anything, Samson's choice of relationships with a lacking spiritual background illustrate, and kind of seemingly the lack of care for the other person as well, he doesn't really care that much for Delilah. He didn't really seem to care that much for the fiancé. He just saw someone who was pretty, and he wanted to marry her. He doesn't care for them, and, or like their spiritual life. What is his spiritual life like? All we know is it's really lame. Anytime he cries out to God, except for the, maybe except for the end of his life, it's like a, how a toddler cries out, like, oh, you're not going to help me out, God? What's the deal? Like that, that's, he seems to be quite shallow as well. He just seems to be using God for his strength. He's entitled. So what are we to learn of this? Well, I think disordered desires is our default kind of normal way of life. It's kind of what we bring to the table is our disorder. By ourselves, when we keep God's ways at arm's length from us, even if we're super religious about it and take some hardcore Nazarite vows, I promise I'm not going to do this, this, and this, we can still very easily keep God away from us. It's, it's really easy. In fact, the easiest way to stay away from God is probably to be part of his church. When we don't allow God into all the parts of our lives, not just in the parts we might present to others, in all parts of our lives, we end up with problems. Samson, did he have any real friends? Like, his relationship past, not the best? His track record? Did anyone, actually, in the story, did anyone truly know him? I don't think anybody did, as far as the information we're given. The only time he was really actually vulnerable, it was used against him, and he was betrayed. Now, I don't think... Samson knows what he really wants. He's just kind of acting out in the moment. 
I think because he's not really actually probably that conversant with his disordered desires within himself to begin with, he doesn't know how they're sabotaging his life in all these ways. It's just do what you want. It's just you do you. Now this echoes what comes up in Judges often, which is what I mentioned um, previously. In those days, in Judges, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. Or everyone did what's right in their own eyes. And what happens when we do what we think is right is complete chaos and sabotage. It's carnage. It's bad. We end up disordered, disconnected from others, broken within, and our spiritual lives are just left in ruin. So where do you go with your desires? Now notice we are talking about sex, of course, but not just sex. Where do you go with your desires? Are are they yours to be used for you only? Or do you talk about them with other people? Do you bring them to God in prayer? Do your desires take you closer to other people and closer to God? Or do your desires keep you away from others or, or even keep you away from God? How, how are we using our desires? What about when we want to do two things that are opposed to each other? Like say you want to have a really busy, successful career and also you want to have lots of family time at home. Those are two desires that are going to conflict in the daily, kind of practical daily life. How do we sort that out? How do we know which ones are good? How do we know when one should give in? How do we sort that out ourselves? Because when we lean on ourselves in that way, it doesn't end up well. Doing what you want is not the way of Jesus. It's how we sabotage our faith. So the way of pagans do what you want, uh, the way of prostitutes is you can have it all now. You can have it all now. So Samson has chosen women over God every single time and suffers consequences because of it. He chooses this way over God, but also his timing over God's. So he goes, why does Samson, this is a question I had when I was reading this, Samson could probably have any woman that he wanted. You know, the super strong guy who's leading Israel. He just got out of a war. Like, he, he, you know, he's the victorious war hero. Why did he go see a prostitute of, of all possibilities? Well, prostitutes offer, you know, satisfaction for people who are impatient. You don't have to develop a relationship. You don't have to talk to somebody. Just, it's a transaction. You pay somebody something and you get the thing you want. In the beginning of chapter 16, we see this Samson, our murderous, angry, self-righteous leader of the Israelites, goes see a prostitute. So he, and he just came out of a relationship, committed a bit of murder. Now he's with a prostitute. He's about to get into another relationship really soon. Samson is completely impatient in all things. We wouldn't say, Samson, you know, he had his problems, but at least he was a patient man. Definitely not at all. And also notice when Samson speaks to God, or notice when he doesn't speak to God, which is most of the time. When he does speak to God, look at, um, I, I just think this is hilarious. J- Judges 15, 18 and 19. This is after um, you know, killing loads of people. Samson uh, says, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. All right, that's good. Bring your needs to God. But the way he talks to God... You have given your servant this great victory. Oh, Samson's relying on God, isn't he? Giving victory over to the God. Oh, I don't know. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the Philistines? It's like, oh, it's kind of like, just give me water, God. Give me what I want. I want, I want water, God. Just give me my water. It's just how God just delivered all the Philistines into his hand, and that's how he's treating him. Samson is not patient at all. Impatient in his relationships, impatient in his spiritual life, and the two definitely feed each other. And though we live in a different time of, than Samson, we are just as impatient, probably more so. We're just as broken in this way. If we don't have what we think 
we want now, we will find a way. So we follow the way of pagans, do what you want, and the way of prostitutes, have it all now. Do what you want now is kind of like how we all really want to live. I mean, if you've ever browsed Instagram and gotten jealous that others are where you'd like to be or are doing what you'd like to do or have friends that you want to have and you don't have, you have those connections supposedly that you really want but, and they have, of course, we don't need Instagram for this, right? We're all impatient in those things. We all want all of our desires satisfied now, and if not, God doesn't love me. So instead of cultivating patience in our unmet desires, we attempt to shortcut the process and try and get what we want now. It could be. This is a crazy thought. It could be. You have unmet desires for a reason. Like They're there for, for something, maybe more than just getting over. Because the problem with shortcuts, anytime we take a shortcut when it comes to this, it always leads to us shorting out. We never go on the right path. Shortcuts always end up like whenever my dad would take a shortcut, it always end up a long cut which is not a shortcut at all. It takes you into places you're not even used to driving. You have to pull over and ask for directions. It's not a good experience for a man. Look, this is where I think pornography is a great metaphor, and more than a metaphor, but a reality. There's a reason why porn works. It's, you can have anything you want right now. It tells you you don't have to wait. You deserve this. There's a reason why having a strong prayer life is difficult, because it takes a long time to cultivate and doesn't deliver immediate results all the time. It's that we avoid things that require patience. See, we've bought the lie that unmet desires cannot be good for anything and must be avoided at all costs. We really believe that. And we wonder why our lives feel so shallow. We aren't cultivating patience in those unmet desires. Eugene Peterson, who's um, uh, he's dead now, he's an author, he was a pastor, he translated the message translation of, of the Bible, um, often said, impatience is the besetting sin of our time. Or even, especially of evangelicals, impatience is the besetting sin of evangelicals. And I think he's right. Or I don't know about all evangelicalism or about all time, but I know about my life. I think he's right about my life. I am am an impatient man. And I'm willing to bet you all kind of are part of that with me in some ways. So if we try and suppress or fulfill every unmet desire that we have, We will never be given the opportunity to wait on the Lord. That is a massive part of the Christian life, to wait on the Lord. If we're always asking for our desires to be met or always meeting them, there's no waiting on the Lord to happen. And so we can never actually do that. And so we never actually get a full experience of the Christian life because we're never waiting on God for anything. We don't need him for that. We can just have it all now, or at least lame versions of it. Now, eventually, Samson Kind of does that, I think, at the end of his story. It's kind of hard to tell. It's ambiguous the way the author writes it. It might be the first kind of real prayer from him as well for all, for all this story. At the end of his life, Samson's blind. He, uh, his hair is kind of slowly growing back, but surely nutrition as a prisoner, as a Philistine, isn't great, so he's probably a bit frail, a bit broken. He requires the help of other people to get him around. And in 1628, he prays, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. That, to me, sounds like a little bit of a different Samson. That's not the Samson who's crying out to God to get a die of thirst in, in, the, in a second if God doesn't come through in water immediately. This is a Samson who's, crying, who's, who's asking God to work. And he sacrifices himself. This is not something we've seen from Samson before. Everyone else was used for his life. But now Samson is giving over his life. Now, there are two ways of living highlighted in this story 
that are also the default ways of living today. We talk about do what you want. We're talking about you can have it all now. This is contrary to the way that Jesus calls us to, the path that Jesus is on. So if we're following him, we have to be on his path. We can't be on our own path and follow him. Those two don't work. That's a a horrible way to live because we feel guilty about it, and we also miss all the benefits of truly living the full experience of the Christian life. Now, none of this here means you have to like what Jesus has to say. You never have to like what Jesus has to say. I don't like a lot of it. It would be great if Jesus didn't say half the stuff he said in the Bible. I would love that. But that's just kind of not what it means to follow him. It's like if, I mean, anything with a child and a parent. Like, the child doesn't have to, Colin doesn't have to like the fact that I told him, you know, no Halloween candy before I left for church this morning. But he listened and he submitted and he surrendered. It was a good job. Well done. Now, we don't have to like it, but it is a requirement for us to surrender our whole lives to him. And that is, re- that is like a, a lifetime of doing. It's like, oh man, I don't really surrender my life. Yeah, that's true. When you're 12, when you're 40, when you're 80, surrendering is a constant process we have to go through. Now, if you are bringing your life to him, he will offend you. He will frustrate you regardless of your maturity. I guarantee it. It will happen. It, it happens that way. And when our way and his way seem to diverge, that's frustrating. I get it. I'm, I get frustrated by that. But remember the noetic effect of sin, right? If I'm on my path by myself, it's probably because I don't have some things right. Or the things that I do have right are in the wrong order and are kind of messed up anyway. And so it's actually the best thing for me to not be on my own path, but to be on the path of Jesus, because Jesus is able to rightly order those good desires in a way that we can enjoy the gifts that he's given us, gifts like sex, gifts like any other kind of strong desires we might have. And as we surrender our whole lives to him, our whole lives to him, he makes us whole. So we have the way of pagans, the way of prostitutes. Now we have the way of Jesus, who says, come, follow me. He doesn't say, do this and that. He doesn't say, take Nazarite vows. He doesn't say, um, make sure you do these things. He just says, follow me. It's a process. It's ongoing. It's not a thing you finish and complete. And he's here inviting us. We're all stumbling towards faith together. None of us has it all together. But as a church, our trajectory is along the way that Jesus invites us to. As he says, come follow me. It's not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing. Come follow me. And the word repentance that you might have heard if you're around church it basically means realignment. I often, as I'm up here, if I talk about repentance, I try and use the word realignment because I feel like that is a better image in my head anyway of realigning my life with God's, out of my way of doing things, more into way of God's way of doing things. As we find the ways that we are on the path of pagans, that we are on the path of prostitutes, like let's just be honest of that when we find those things happening, we realign our lives with him and we say, God, I'm, I'm sorry, won't you change me? And we slowly get there. We slowly get there. How does Jesus, um, what does Jesus have to say about our desires? Specifically about sex. Well, Jesus and the rest of the biblical writers are completely consistent with each other. There's no inconsistencies about how the, the biblical writers over millennia have written about sex and what sex is used for and its best use. Together, they present a cohesive vision of sex. Sex is for those who are married between a man and a woman, and this is the best way to enjoy the gift of sex that God has given us. This is what the Bible says. This isn't what a church says. This isn't what I say. It's what the Bible says in it. And we don't have to like it. It's just kind of what it says. Now, to share your body with someone and not share the other parts of what make you you 
is a disordered way of living. That's kind of what sex in our contemporary society is. We don't have to really know people that well. We can just give our bodies over to them and feel like that's good enough. But to, sex is, is more than just a merely physical act. Sex is a spiritual act. And so to not share the spiritual side of ourselves as well as all the other parts of ourselves in sex is, is, is not really enjoying the gift. It's enjoying like a, a small fraction of it, turning it into something that is really not. Marriage, and in particular sex, is a symbol of how Jesus cares for us, how he loves us, how connected. I mean, if, if that makes you feel weird, because it's like sex is a really intimate thing that we don't really talk about a lot, and even like the physical act of sex is meant and created to show how much Jesus cares for us. That feels weird to say. Uh, I don't like, you know, I would, I would actually love to do like a long-term Redeemer series on sex and all that stuff because we don't, it's not stuff we often talk about. But that intimacy, that vulnerability, that is how much Jesus is connected with you as a believer. As weird as that might be to be like, oh, Jesus and sex, I don't want them in the same room. Um, but that, that, the act of that, that, that's how much God loves us. That's how much he wants to be with us. how much he wants to know us. That's how much of himself he's sharing with us. All of us. All of himself with us. And he asks for all of us in return. I mean, even the church itself is called the bride. The bride of, of who? The bride of Christ. And new heavens and earth is pictured in this way of a big wedding feast. What happens after a wedding? It's this complete kind of consummation of all things. Not just a single sexual act, but everything being fulfilled complete in the way that it was meant to be. That's what the Christian life is like. It's not a bunch of rules of you should do this, you shouldn't do this. It's, it should be enjoyable, just like sex should be enjoyable. Now, Jesus also makes it clear that, of course, we're all messed up. And if we've had thoughts about sex that aren't pure, which surely is nobody in this room, nobody here, right? Nobody's nodding, thank God. I've been weird. Of course, we all have. Having those thoughts is just as broken as having an affair. Just as broken. And it doesn't matter if you're a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male or someone who was born a man, now identifies as a woman, and is attracted to another woman. We all need help. We're all in the same boat together, regardless of where you come from. And in every case, this reality is true for all. A life aligned with Jesus means that some desires will be met. And it also means some desires won't be met here, on this side of heaven. That's just a reality. And you don't have to follow Jesus for that to be true. That's everyone's experience as they go through life. What Christianity does is it gives us a place to put those unmet desires, and it gives us a way to celebrate those desires we get to rightfully enjoy. Now, whether married or not, whether having sex or not, whether you have a great sex life, whether you have a frustrating sex life, we bring all of us to Him. And if we don't surrender to God's love in the way that we live, it's, it's not the best for us. We miss out. We sabotage our, our, our lives. We sabotage our spiritual lives. And sabotage spiritual lives leak out into all other areas of our lives. That's what Samson teaches us anyway. It didn't go that well for Samson. Samson is not a be like Samson stories. Don't be like Samson stories. Not a good thing. So the way of Jesus isn't always easy, but it is always better. And it may not be better immediately, just like having sugar all the time might be great when you first have that first Halloween candy, but then if you had like 20, you're not going to feel super great at the end of the night when you wake up in the morning, as evidenced yesterday. Now, if we doubt, okay, here's the thing. If we doubt Jesus' love for us, then of course we're not going to follow in his way. Why would we follow somebody who we don't trust, who we don't 
think has our best interest for us, especially if it's something that's difficult, especially if it's something that's like, that we don't want to do. But if we get how much Jesus loves us, as much, more than any man who's ever wanted to have sex with any woman, more than that strong desire, if we get how much Jesus loves us, then we get that idea of surrender is more than just holding me back from really how I want to live and more of a giving into how I ought to be. If, if we really trust that Jesus loves us that much, then that helps us a little bit move, that just, move the needle just to the 51% of following Jesus over to that path. And then we take more steps like that and, it, and we grow in maturity and we grow in maturity over time. Now, what about um, opposing desires? I gave that example of um, opposing desires, like a busy career and having lots of family time. What are we to do with that? Because I think it's, it's easy to single out one thing like sex and just talk about that. But the reality of our lives is we're a mix of all these things. And so how do we deal with things that feel like they're in competition with each other? Like, I don't want to be lonely, so I'm going to have sex. Like, that makes sense, right? But what about maybe there's a conflicting desire of I also want to follow Jesus. How do we, how do we work this out? How does it work? I don't know specifically the answer in all of your specific situations, but what we can all do is look to how it worked for Jesus. Because Jesus had conflicting desires too. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he's talking to the Father. Jesus does not want to be tortured. He does not want to die, and he doesn't, on one hand, and he doesn't want to take all the sins upon the world on one hand. That's why he's talking to God about it. He's saying, if if there's any other possible way, God, please let that be the case. But then he also says, but if not, let your will be done. Jesus surrenders that. Jesus has these conflicting desires. He wants a people for himself, but he also doesn't want to go through death. I get that. I don't want to die. If there was a thing where I had to die in order for it to happen, I'd have a little bit of a conflicting desire. Apply that to any kind of desire you have. Do we bring those conflicts to God in the way that Jesus brought his conflict to God? See, Jesus was secure in the, secure in the Father's love. He knew how much the Father cared for him. He knew the Father had a plan. And even though Jesus knew he had to die because he was going to, he still brought those feelings to God, the Father. That's an amazing image of what it looks like to have a strong and powerful emotional life that's connected to our spiritual life, that's connected, obviously, ultimately to God. So if we look to Jesus and how he did that, he went to the Father, he brought it before him, he asked for another way, even, he, even though he knew that there wouldn't be and Jesus surrendered himself. How amazing. The Son of God gave himself to the Father. And we get the benefits from that. That he wouldn't have been there if he didn't do that. So Jesus does what the Father wants, even when it meant his death. Now, to end with, here, here, just, this is because Jesus did that. There's lots of really great reasons on why that's good for us. I'm just going to pick three, because we're getting there. Um, the first thing. We get forgiveness. We get forgiveness when we don't follow Jesus. When we say, you know what, I'm going to go to that website. Or you know what, I'm going to have sex. Or you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to follow the way of pagans. I'm going to follow the way of prostitutes. I don't got to follow Jesus' path. Because of what Jesus has done, we can be forgiven. This doesn't mean a license to do whatever you want to do all the time. But it means you are never too far from God. Nobody's ever too far from God because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what we do. So when we try those shortcuts, Jesus is there asking us to come follow him. Secondly, so we get forgiveness. Secondly, we get freedom. We get to be freed from slavishly following our desires. Your desires do not care about you. They don't. They don't care about you at all. 
Like, if anything, they're the worst thing for you by themselves. But God cares for you, and God has given you those desires to be put in the right place. So we can be free from having to slavishly follow what we feel like doing all the time, and free to live in the way God calls us to do when Jesus is in control. As Mike Lehan preached, if Jesus is Lord, we're not. And submitting to that is actually good for us. We get to be freed. And the third thing, I think this might be the biggest thing, certainly the most difficult. Uh, Our desires, including our sexual desire, lead us to God. Our desires, including our sexual desires, lead to God. Have you ever thought about that? Your sexual desire is a pathway to knowing God? That's not something I get preached on very much. We should maybe talk about sex a lot more in the church. Maybe more people come. I don't know. Maybe that's a new thing. Your sexual desire is a path to knowing God. Of course it is. Who do you think made up sex to begin with? Of course. God loves sex. He made it. So when those desires are rightly met, it's a gift from God to us. He wants us to enjoy this life. And for some of us, that might mean getting married. That might mean enjoying sex. We should thank him for it. We shouldn't feel entitled to it. If you have a good sex life, that should be part of your, your prayers of thanks to God. Thank you, God, for my good sex life. Like, that should be something that we pray often if, if we have that. Because we're not entitled to it. But also, and this is the difficult part of, of number three here, when our desires are not met, this is also true. In our unmet desires, we can also, um, God also uses that as a path to knowing him. He uses that as a path to draw us to himself. When we have a strong desire to be married or to have sex or to have children or whatever the thing might be, or maybe you're in a marriage and it's more difficult than good and sex isn't something to be praised as much as it is something to be lamented and all our desires that are not met, we see Jesus in the garden going to the Father, surrendering himself. This Jesus is with you. That same Jesus is with you. He knows what it's like more than you will ever know to have unmet desires. And we have an opportunity to learn more about him as we surrender when it isn't easy. If we never surrender when it isn't easy, we're going to have a very shallow view of God and very shallow Christian experience. So all of us have unmet desires, and probably very few of us regularly talk to God about it, especially when it involves sex. How often do we say, God, I'm really frustrated in my sex life? I mean, if you are frustrated in your sex life, like, you should be praying that often, because God wants to hear that. But celebrating communion together is something that God told us to do in order to remember what he's done. Or, and those three things are, are aspects of what he's done for us. To regularly bring our whole selves before him, our met and unmet desires and all. And this is something that all who follow Jesus have been called to do. This is not for perfect people. This is for imperfect people. This is for people who are incomplete that find their wholeness in God. And not just on Sundays when it's convenient when we have to say all the words all together. But people who are living constantly in the pain of unmet desires. And who doesn't have unmet desires? We all do. And also people who are living with the joys of met desires. We bring all of ourselves to God. See, Jesus was a much better Samson. Jesus will always, what was always in a deep relationship with the Father. And he never used that reality to his advantage. He always used that reality to our advantage. That's why he died. Sacrificing himself not just for a small amount of people who lived a thousand years ago, you know, in a place that's far away from here, but for a family that is growing and will continue to grow regardless of a pandemic or lockdown or being able to meet physically in person or not. And it will continue to grow until Jesus himself makes all things new. 